Please turn with me to James 2. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 26. If you remember, James hasn't been um, focusing on establishing doctrine and setting that out, explaining all of that in as much detail. He's been more concerned with how we're actually living our lives, which should flow from that. But his focus is, are you actually living what you say you believe? And um, so the, the, the idea is that we should have an active faith that comes from this undivided life that's devoted to God. And so we're going to look at this passage this morning that talks about faith and works. When I say works, I'm going to say that word a lot this morning because it's in the passage a lot. But actions, deeds, our behavior, what we do is what we're talking about there. And James is going to tell us again that our faith must be active. And this isn't anything new. In chapter 1, he told us that if we don't do or obey the word, then we're deceiving ourselves. He tells us that real religion is active, that it controls our speech, that it cares for the vulnerable, and that it keeps us holy. Last week, we were reminded of the royal law, to love our neighbor as ourself. It says that when we fail to do so, it's actually showing that we're rejecting God because the law reveals his character. And often when we talk about faith and works, we pit them against one, of another, one another, as if they're opposed to one another. But that's not what James does here. If you remember a few weeks ago at the end of chapter 1 when we talked about religion, we didn't contrast relationship versus religion. He contrasted real religion versus false religion. And so he's going to kind of do the same thing today. He's not going to pit faith against works, but dead faith against living faith. Faith that is merely knowledge or intellectual assent against faith that is transformative and active. So let's look at what James has to say about faith. So hear God's word from James. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would help us this morning, as we need every morning, your spirit to illumine this to our hearts and minds, that we can know and love you more deeply through your word, that we would see more of reality through it, 
as we talk about something that's often familiar and can seem confusing with other things that you say, God, give us wisdom as we navigate this and help us to look at our own lives as we consider faith and help us to consider our own faith. Ask that you would convict us where we need convicted, that you would encourage us where we need encouraged, and that you would make us more like your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been around someone who talks a really big game and then you actually see them do whatever you're talking about and you think they have no idea what they're doing? (laughs) If you've played sports, I'm sure you've been around this. Um, And I've probably been this guy a time or two in my life because I know everything, but um, probably been around it like if you play baseball or golf, you have someone like correcting your swing for you, telling you exactly what you need to do, and then you watch them, and you're like a thousand times better. You're like, they don't know what they're talking about. Or if you play an instrument, these people abound. I played guitar in college um, in a couple bands, and you'd have people that want to talk with you about it, and they'd come up, and they'd tell you all about music, and music theory, and techniques, and all this stuff they know, and then you're like, well, let's play, and hand them a guitar, and they're like, no, I can't right now. Now, often it's because they actually don't know how to play, that they can't actually put this into action. We're often like that when it comes to our faith. We can know a lot of theology, especially in our Presbyterian circles. We love theology, and it's a good thing. But we can know a lot of it and often think that this correct knowledge or intellectual assent, if we'll believe it in our minds, then it'll save us. That's why when we're having a problem with something, we say, well, here's a book for that. (laughs) As if reading a book will fix it. Not saying books are bad. I love books. But reading a book will not change it. Or we think that a mere profession of faith is enough. But James says, no. Profession and knowledge by themselves aren't worth anything. If they don't produce works, they're dead. Instead, he says that living faith produces works of love toward God and neighbor. That's kind of the big idea this morning, that living faith produces works of love toward God and neighbor. And James is going to show us this by giving four illustrations, two negative illustrations of faith that doesn't work, and then two illustrations of living faith that works. So first, let's see how faith that doesn't produce works of love is dead, and it doesn't save. Look at me at verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? It looks like James is asking questions here in English, like, well, we have to figure out the answer. But in Greek, it's not actually the case. When he says, what good is it? It's a fixed question. He says, what's the benefit? The answer is none. It's not. It's like when we say, well, what's the point? We're not saying, well, tell me what the point is, please. We're saying there is no point. Similarly, the way the question is framed, can that faith save us? In Greek, there's a way to formulate questions that imply those answers. And it says, no, this faith can't save you. So it might be better coming across, that faith can't save you, can it? No. 
It can't. That's what he's actually saying there in verse 14. So what kind of faith has no benefit and can't save a person? A professed faith. He says you say you have it, you profess it. But that doesn't produce works. A person can say they believe and they can even say all the right things. But if that doesn't flow into actions, it's of no benefit. James continues with an illustration. And this kind of continues this theme in chapter 2 of caring for the poor that we saw in not showing partiality. And then the example of partiality again in loving neighbor. This kind of um, sets the background even for our passage today is here because of dealing with the poor. That's why it needs to be brought up and discussed. So James says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? This might have been a common occurrence, like this thing is happening to the people James is writing. If it's not this exact thing, we can assume things very similar were happening regularly. And look at what's happening. It's a brother or sister. This is the the church. It's another church member who's in need. And you see it. It's not like you're not, um, not like you're oblivious to it. Look at the response. It corresponds exactly to the needs. They're poorly clothed and hungry. Your response is be warmed and filled. You're not ignorant of it. You just don't help. Instead, you pronounce a blessing without being a blessing. Go in peace. This is a common blessing. I say it at the end of every service. I send you out, right? Go in peace. It's a blessing. And when they say, be warmed and filled, this passive voice is actually implying, it's more like saying, may God warm and fill you. Which is so ironic because the way God actually works is through his church. (laughs) That God does intend to warm and fill them, but he intends to do it through you. That's not happening. What they say is really theological. It just isn't loving. And James repeats that rhetorical question again. What good or benefit is it? None. (laughs) They're still poorly clothed. They're still hungry. It didn't do anything for them. Might have said some pretty good churchy sounding things but it didn't produce love toward neighbor. Praise God that we're not ever like that. Don't you? I'm sure none of you have heard of someone's need and then responded by saying, I'll pray for you when you could have helped. And then what often happens? We forget that we even said we'd pray and don't even do the thing that we said we'd do. Maybe you're even more like me where I've realized the tendency to do that. And so I stop saying, I'll pray for you because I don't want to lie. And so instead I say, I'm really sorry you're going through that. (laughs) Which is true, but again, of no benefit. Or I'll say, that really stinks. It's less theological, it's less churchy sounding, but it's the same result. It doesn't meet the need. It doesn't actually help. And often it's 
the resources it would take or the things I'd have to give up. Sometimes we don't genuinely know what to do, you know. Sometimes we can't meet a need that's there, and we can pray, and we can recognize that things shouldn't be this way, and that's not wrong. But when we could help and we fail to, it's often because we're selfish. It's that to have things I don't want to give up. Often it's my time. Sometimes it can be money or comfort. Sometimes it's just a lack of compassion. Because in that moment, I forget the compassion that God has showed to me. And in that moment, I'm of no benefit. And James goes from this illustration back to summarizing the point. He says, As these words without action are of no benefit, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You can't save. It doesn't produce love of neighbor. And James gives the second illustration of faith that doesn't produce works of love, this time toward God instead of neighbor. And the illustration James uses, like, (laughs) seems pretty extreme to us. It goes how far we can actually go knowing the right things without it changing our lives, without it actually mattering. Look at me at verse 18. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. It's a little bit of a challenge here because we'd expect it to go the opposite, right? You have works and I have faith. But I think what's actually happening here is he's not saying you need both of them, and I'm going to show you one, you show the other. Kind of treating it like spiritual gifts, like, well, some people are going to have works, and some people are going to have faith. You show your works, I'll show my faith. And James says, no, that's not how it works. You have to have both. They have to go together. They can't be separated out. And he says, verse 18 and 19, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So how do we show our faith? By the way we respond to God. But if our faith is merely a belief in our minds or knowledge, then it isn't any different than the faith of demons. James uses the most kind of theologically orthodox statement of the Old Testament, the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The statement of the uniqueness of God, the God of Israel, the only God. This is what sets the Jewish people apart from every other nation, from every other religion. There is one God, their God, the creator of heaven and earth. You do well to believe that. You should. But do you know what? It's not enough to just believe that in your mind. To just know it. Even the demons believe that. And yet, what's their response to God? They shudder. They shake in fear. We see this in the Gospels when Jesus confronts demon-possessed people. How the demons respond. Why? Because they know who God is. They know about God. 
but they don't live as though it's true. They don't actually really know it. They don't follow the second part of that passage. What Jesus says is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. They know the intellectual truth, but they don't obey. That's how you are if you say you have faith but don't care to obey God. I mean, how else can we show what's in our minds, what we say we know and believe, except for by how we act? I read an article this last week where an Italian artist sold this piece. It's called I Am, but in Italian, I don't know how you'd say it. He sold this piece called I Am for 15,000 euros. So a little over $18,000. You know the kicker? It's an invisible sculpture. <laughs> this is what the artist said this. You don't see it, but it exists. It is made of air and spirit. It has to be exhibited in a private home in a roughly five foot by five foot space with no obstruction. The good news is that can be displayed in any light, because it doesn't matter. <laughs> and the owner doesn't have to worry about it being stolen, because even if it is, he won't know. <laughs> as much as we might admire this artist's creativity, at least in making money, I hope we can see how ridiculous this is. They had to give the guy a certificate saying he owned a sculpture because there's no sculpture. But James says, if you have faith without works, it's kind of like an invisible sculpture. We can't see it. It's not really there. If it's just in your mind, if you hear and don't obey, as James said in chapter 1, you're deceiving yourself. Your faith is dead if it doesn't produce works of love toward God. So now James moves on from these illustrations of dead faith to illustrations of living faith, faith that produces works of love toward God and neighbor now. He switches the order. He asked the same hypothetical someone who said these things. He calls him a fool here, but he asked this person if he wants to be shown that faith apart from works is useless or more literally that faith apart from works doesn't work. Then it illustrates the point. Look with me at verses 21 to 24. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith, faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We might hear this language of being justified by works and say, well, hold on now. Paul says the opposite. If we look at Romans 3, Paul says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Well, how can these fit? 
Do they disagree? There's been a lot of ink spilt over this. But I don't think it's actually that difficult to reconcile if we acknowledge the context of it, if we acknowledge that Paul didn't write James, James didn't write Romans, and they weren't addressing the same thing. They're actually using words differently. That words don't have one fixed single definition. Even if we look in our dictionaries, you'll see meaning one, two, three, and sometimes the, the range can be very close to each other, and sometimes it's something completely different. If you look up, like, swing, it can mean to swing something, like a baseball swing or a golf swing, which are very similar and yet different, or a swing on a playground equipment. kind of does the same thing, but it's something very different. Words can mean different things, and they can be used differently, and so we need to actually look at what's being said and how it's being used to see what way it's being used instead of saying, well, this always means this and injecting it in. So the Greek word for justifies has a range of meanings. And one is to declare righteous, which is how Paul uses it most often, which is how we often think about it, that it is by faith alone that we are declared righteous in the sight of God, not by works, as we heard from Ephesians in our assurance of pardon, because of Christ. This is the cry of the Reformation. Right? When we trust in Christ, we place our faith in Him. He gives us His righteousness and we are secure forever. It can mean to declare righteous, but it can also mean to show that one is righteous or to vindicate publicly, to make it seen or known which is how James uses it. He's not saying works make you righteous, but they show or demonstrate that you have been made righteous. That it's an outworking of being made righteous by faith. They also use faith differently. When Paul uses it, we could say that he's often using what James would call living faith, where James is actually contrasting two different types. But James uses it to describe here this profession or this just mere intellectual assent or knowledge. So he says a person is shown to be righteous, justified by worth, works, and not by faith alone. Faith needs to be there. That's what is being shown by the works. A profession or knowledge alone doesn't show that you're righteous. If it's alone, it says, I have an invisible sculpture. James and Paul also have different purposes in what they're writing there at the beginning of Romans and here in James. Paul is talking about how one becomes saved to those who think that they can earn salvation through works. And he says, no way. Salvation comes through faith alone, in Christ alone. But James, as we've said, is talking about how we live after we're saved, how we live the Christian life and how it plays out. That you can't just do what you want. That if you actually believe in Christ, that it changes the way that you live. And Paul says things like that too. If we look at the end of our assurance of pardon. Says that there are good works that we're to walk in that were prepared beforehand for us. Paul isn't opposed to good works. He's opposed to viewing good works as something by which you can save yourself. 
So James uses this example of Abraham's faith resulting in unhindered obedience to God. So Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. And in Genesis 15, God takes him outside, tells him to look up at the stars. And this isn't like downtown Appleton light pollution where you might see a couple dozen stars. This is like if you're up north. I assume I haven't been up north, but been in northern Ontario on a clear night. It's, it's amazing. It's beautiful. How many stars you can see in the sky. He says, your descendants will be as plentiful as the stars in the sky. But Abraham didn't have a child. But it says there in Genesis 15, 6 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And after years of waiting with no child, Abraham's 100 years old and he finally has this promised son, Isaac, says, through whom your offspring will be named. They're coming through him. My promise will come. He's finally waited for so long. He's finally gotten it. And God tests him. And he asks him to sacrifice that son. God tests his faith by asking him to give up what he valued most. It's like reiterated in Genesis there. It's his son, his only son Isaac, the one he loved. And Abraham trusted God and obeyed. As he walks away with Isaac, he tells his servants, he says, we're going over there to worship God and we'll come back. Even though he knew what God commanded. Hebrews tells us that it was by faith that Abraham obeyed and he considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, that he would fulfill his promises, that he would do as he said. Abraham showed that his faith was real by obeying God. Unlike the demons who know the truth about God but reject him. And Abraham's called a friend of God. So we have to ask, does our faith produce works of love toward God? Does it work obedience to him? A willingness to to give up anything for him. And James gives us a second positive illustration showing that living faith produces works of love toward neighbor. Look at me at verse 25. It says, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. It's another example from the Old Testament, this time from Joshua 2. And James's audience is mostly Jewish, so they would already have all the background and all, understand everything that's going on here. But God's people were about to enter the promised land after wandering in the desert for 40 years. And the first city they had to take was Jericho. So you might remember the story of the walls that came tumbling down. 
Well, before the marching and the hollering and the walls coming down, Joshua, the leader of the people after Moses, he sent spies into Jericho. They were going to check it out. And the spies went into the town, and they went to the house of a prostitute named Rahab. And that's where travelers would go, so it wouldn't be suspicious for that to happen. But the king of Jericho hears that spies have come, and he wants to capture them. But Rahab hides them. She cares for them. She protects them and sends them out a different way so that they can escape. She didn't do this just for fun. It would have made more sense if she just gave them up to the king. Right? She's there too. But she actually put her faith in the God of Israel. And what we see In Joshua there, she professes to the messengers. She says, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She professes that faith in him. But then she acts on it too. She showed what she believed by aligning herself with that God and his people. By putting herself at risk to care for these others. So in Rahab, we see living faith produces works of love toward others, which is such a vivid contrast between the Christians in the first illustration that won't even feed and clothe their fellow Christians. James concludes this section in verse 26 with a simile to kind of wrap up and summarize what he's been saying. He says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. But if you don't have the second part, it's not, if they're not together, they're not alive. What James does by using these two examples seems strange, right? Abraham and Rahab are very different people. But that's the point. They're polar opposites. They show that what he's saying applies to everyone. It's not just the really good Christians, the important people, the leaders. Living faith produces works of love toward God and neighbor for everyone, from the father of the Jews to a lowly female Gentile prostitute, to everyone in between, including you and me. So the question James is putting before us, the one we have to ask ourselves, is this, is your faith living or dead? How do we know? Well, it isn't whether we know the right things, though we do need to know the right things. We can't merely know them. We do need to know that we are sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving His wrath and displeasure. That we are in need of God's mercy towards us. And we need to know that Jesus is God who became a man, who walked among us, who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death on the cross for all who believe in him, to take their sins that we could be forgiven and to give us his righteousness 
And that he didn't remain in the grave, but he rose again, showing that he has conquered sin and death and that we have new life in his resurrection. We do have to know that. We do have to profess that. But if we know it in our minds and it doesn't affect our hearts and the way that we live, if it doesn't produce love for God and neighbor, then James says it's dead. It's not real faith. It's not living faith. For some of you, this might be the first time you're hearing this. This might be the case. James says that if your faith is only in your mind, it cannot save you. Don't place your hope in the fact that you've made a profession of faith. We can profess faith without possessing faith. But look at your life and ask, does what I say I believe about God affect the way that I live? Do I want to love him? Do I want to obey him? Has it changed anything about me? If not, we have to ask, do I really believe it? For most of the rest of us, until Christ returns, if we're honest, we'll look at our own lives and we'll say, I do love God and I love others. But there are times, <laughs> maybe even a lot of the time, when I love other things more, where I'm not consistent, I'm often more concerned for myself than others. And I'm selfish with my time and my money. I say I don't have time, but I spend hours on Facebook or Instagram or watching Netflix. Or I don't have money to help them. But I'll go out to eat five times a week and buy drinks and pay for four streaming services. Or I'll care about my own comfort more, about, more than caring about others. I'm not saying we don't take care of ourselves. We should. We can go to the extreme. We can take it too far. It's easy for me to say, well, I'm an introvert. I need my time alone. I just really need some time for myself. And helping them would really just drain me. I do that. Might not say it, but I'll think it. Our faith is alive, but we're often so inconsistent with the way that we live. We're divided between God and the world, vacillating back and forth, unstable. So, what's the solution? For both of us, those with dead faith and those with living faith, but faith that until Christ returns will not be expressed perfectly. It's easy to read James and say, well, I need to do better. 
I need to work harder. That's not what James says. If that's what you're hearing, you're reading him wrong. The solution is not to add works to the faith that we have. Good works cannot resurrect dead faith. They do not strengthen faltering faith. Nor do they add anything to faith. They just show what faith is there. The solution is not to do better, but to truly believe the gospel. Works don't produce it. Real faith produces works. We can't flip the order. For those with dead faith, it's to get living faith, to truly believe on Christ, to actually see your sin and your need for Him, and to see His beauty and say, I want to be like that. To see it, to be changed by it, by what he has done and accomplished for us. For us, with living faith, it's in those moments of disobedience where we love ourselves or other things more than God and others. It's to remember what Christ has done. We forget so quickly, so easily, that God gave of himself for us. That God, the one who created all things, the one who holds all things together, that he suffered and died for us, for me, his enemy, one who hated him, one who has nothing to give him in return, can't pay anything back. Yet he saved us. He adopts us. He calls us his own children. And he is truly good. That he truly loves us. That we are safe and secure in him. He doesn't stop there. He gives us his own spirit to live in us. To change us. To empower us. To obey. I mean, if we can remember that. If we can know that in our hearts how can we not love him in others how can we not give of ourselves for others works do not save us Christ saves us he also changes us so that our living faith Saving faith always produces works of love toward God and neighbor.